Good morning. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of your pastors. It's a gift to be with, here, with you here today. We're going to continue in our series in Isaiah. Over the next few weeks, we had to move some, uh, some, some of the preaching stuff around. We traded some dates, and so we're going to jump around a little bit, but we're nearing the end of the book of uh, Isaiah 40 to 55. And uh, today, what we're going to focus on is verses 6 and 7 of ch- chapter 55. Chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open there. And to set the context of where we're at as we jump into this passage, we've been looking at Isaiah 40 through 55 and this, this sweet message, this poetic message from Isaiah speaking to God's people who are in exile. They had been taken from their homes and brought into Babylon, living in exile there, tempted to worship the idols, to take on the ways of Babylon. Probably hopeless, defeated, feeling like God had stopped speaking to them. And there comes this beautiful, poetic message of hope that God is going to rescue them, to resist the idols of Babylon and turn towards God and trust him because God has a plan to rescue them. It's a strange plan. It's a plan that God is going to have this servant, this royal servant come through establish justice, put things right, and deliver them and bring them back home. And how's he going to do it? In the strangest possible way. As Jake talked about last week, the servant coming and healing through his own sufferings, that he would suffer to bring the people back to God and back home. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what is the response the right response to this beautiful thing that God is doing in sending the servant who will suffer for his people to bring them back to God. We're going to look at it from some different angles. But today, we're going to focus on the word repentance. The call to respond by repentance. Now, when you think of repentance... I imagine a lot of you don't get super fired up about that word. That's not like your favorite word that you're throwing around in your vocabulary. A lot of times we think of repentance and we think of like a mean preacher with like a vein in his neck just pointing his finger at you. A lot of people who uh, might be in here who are not followers of Jesus would think that this is what Christians say when they're looking down on you. For those of us who are believers... We probably have a sense that this word is good, but it's like good in the way that like broccoli and like a dentist and like paying your taxes. Like it's something you have to do, but it's not something that you get fired up about. It's kind of a miserable thing. But I want to tell you today, my prayer is that the word repentance, as we look at this passage in Isaiah, will become beautiful to you and that you will see that it is a beautiful invitation from God. So let's start. What is repentance? I want to start today by giving you 
the best metaphor that I've ever encountered for me to help me understand repentance. And it's going to take some backstory, though, to get, get you there. It happened in my life. It happened way before I was a believer. And I had this childhood best friend, like this guy who was like a brother to me as a kid in elementary school, junior high, high school. And of all the people in my family, he was probably the most like family to me. Everywhere we went, we were together. And everywhere we went, we were doing crazy stuff. We had a handful of goals in life. We played some of the most intense games of basketball. We'd get in fights. But we would try to do, you know, try to find girlfriends who are out of our league. <laughs> Dream about what tattoos we're going to get when we're older. Let me just give you some of the antics to set the, the, the context of some of the crazy things we did. We dreamed up tattoos, but we realized we were too young, so we took a hanger and tried to like shape it in the tattoo and then put it on the stove <laughs> so, so that we could have like this matching tattoo of this little symbol that we created. Uh, it didn't work. It was very painful. <laughs> um, always trying to find girlfriends that were out of our league. Well, they were out of my league. They, they tended to like him. They were in his league. And he would, he, would, he would try to help me out a little bit. And on Valentine's Day one year, he just sent a, a, a bunch of boxes of chocolates to all these girls from me <laughs> without me knowing, saying like, will you be my girlfriend? And he was just trying to play the numbers, the odds game. <laughs> and there was one who responded. And she, I just was like, why is this girl around me so much? And then he told me. <laughs> we were always in these antics. But one day we got into to something uh, that I'll never forget. We thought we could play a quick game of basketball at the YMCA and get back home in time. We, we were told a strict time that we needed to be home, and we took the bus to the YMCA. We were cutting it close. We got out of the YMCA. We're exhausted, and we're looking for the bus. Route 72. I'll, I'll never forget it. It wasn't coming southbound. We couldn't see a bus. But one was going northbound across the street. And with confidence, I just told Wendell, let's get on that bus. Buses always turn around. It's the rule. It's how buses work. So we got on there. He was a little skeptical. And we started taking that bus. And right about the time we got around ASU, we started falling asleep. We both fall asleep. And an hour later we find ourselves in, so far in North Scottsdale, we thought we were in the like, border of New Mexico. <laughs> and the bus driver wakes us up and he says, uh, my shift is done, you have to get off the bus. And he was just ending his route there. And we had this need to actually get on a bus and make our way back home. Repentance, the simple definition is turning the bus around that we are heading in the wrong direction, in a direction away from God, away from home, and the call to repentance is to stop going in that direction and to turn around and to come home. Repentance is this beautiful invitation to take two turns, the turn from sin and idolatry and the turn toward God. And here in Isaiah, we see both of these turns, and we're going to look at them today. 
So go ahead and look at verse 6 and 7. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. What we see here is the first turn of repentance, to turn from sin and to turn from idolatry. This passage has a sense of urgency, that, that God has done this great work through the, through the servant, and now God is showing up and saying, seek me while I may be found. I'm showing up to you. I am near to you. Respond. Come to me. But in order to come to him, there are some barriers in the way that they have must deal with. It says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Sin. Sin is this barrier. It's using different terminology to, to get at sin. But oftentimes when we think of sin, we tend to think of it as like these individual acts that we do that are on a checklist of things you're not supposed to do rather than a whole way of life that is oriented away from God. It says, let him forsake his ways and forsake his thoughts, both actions, but also the internal state of life, the trajectory that you are heading on. And to forsake it, it means to like drop it and move the other way, to turn away from it because it is detrimental. It is like the bus that is taking you far from where you need to be and far into destruction to turn it around. And Israel, God's people in captivity, were tempted by the idols of Babylon, by the sin of Babylon, by the, the way of life in Babylon. And each was like a bus that's sending them further from God. And the invitation to repent is to see that sin and turn the bus around. The same is true for us too. It's not just these individual acts, but when we make idols out of things, they send us on a trajectory away from God. Money sends us on a trajectory toward greed and away from God. When we worship pleasure, it sends us on a trajectory of lust that moves us away from God. When we worship our work, we choose something other than God, and it sends us on a bus away from God, and we need to have it turned around. Sin needs to be repented of. Now, when you're thinking of sin, I imagine that there are different ideas here in this room. If we were to ask, like, real theology to just say, hey, what, what are the problems in the world? Like, where do they come from? And a lot of us would say, Genesis 3, sin, the fall. But the way that sin works is, is, is complex, and it comes from different angles. And we tend to elevate one of the angles and make that the answer to everything. So let me throw a diagram up here to try to explain evil and the presence of suffering and the fall in the world, that there's different aspects of the sin and its effects. Up in the upper left corner, there's my sin and my idolatry. It's the stuff that I am responsible for, that I have done, where I have actively turned away from God. This tends to be a more conservative leaning on sin, a conservative explanation of sin. But then on the other side, there's other people's sin, and their idolatry, both 
individual, and cultural. And, and what that side says is that it's not just that you are a sinner, but there are, there are people sin against you, and that is a part of a lot of the problems that we experience in the world. There are cultural, collective ideas that run against God that are systemic and, and create injustice and sin there. But then there's also individuals who harm other individuals, and that creates a whole array of problems. So this would be someone who is abused by another. It is not your fault you've been sinned against in that situation, and the pain you experience comes from that. But then there are whole cultural lies and ideologies that pressure us to act in certain ways as well. And that tends to be a more progressive look at sin. Then in the corner, uh, the bottom corner, you have the demonic powers that actually Satan and his minions are influencing us and pulling us away from God. And that tends to be a more charismatic look at sin and the fall. And then you've got fallen creation. The fact that there is physical pain in the world, that, there, that our bodies have been affected by the fall. Like, like, like sometimes someone experiencing depression, it's not because their sin or someone who sinned against them or a demonic power, but there might be a chemical imbalance that comes from living in a fallen world. And who, who emphasized that one? Well, we all do. We all have hurt knees and stuff. We understand that one, right? But this is like a, a fuller view and we tend to elevate one of these things and suppress the other things. But the reality is that all of them are generally at work at all times. Like, like when I overwork, what, it is my sin and my idolatry of work that is the problem. But some of it comes from some trauma when I was a kid that there's a fear that emerges of, of not wanting to be homeless. There's probably demonic powers that are whispering uh, you're, you're worthless unless you get a few extra hours in. And uh, the fallen creation, I mean, the fact that I have dyslexia, a mild form of dyslexia, and I can't always read as well, slows my work down, right? All of these things are a part of the experience of a sinful and broken world. But where do we need to emphasize? What does this passage emphasize? I think as a church, we have swung the pendulum away from our individual sin and idolatry and taking responsibility for that. And it's important because the passage actually hits right at that. This word for wickedness, no matter how you translate wicked, unless you're like in Vermont or something, <laughs> it's pretty bad, right? And what it means is that you are guilty before the law. Like you have transgressed the covenant that God has set up. It's not an oopsie. It's not a mistake. It's not a misstep. It's not a bad habit, but it's something you have done and you are guilty of, and that is the sin that you need to turn from and repent of. One of the barriers that we have to actually seeing our sin, these words, sin, idolatry, has kind of fallen out of favor. One of the barriers is that we tend to think of the world in mistakes and bad habits that end up minimizing the reality and the weight of sin. This was my story. When I was a kid, when I was in junior high, 
I knew I had something messed up with me. But what I thought it was is I thought I was just making mistakes. I just had some bad habits and didn't really feel the need for Jesus, for Christianity. The only time I went to church, I'll tell you about the time I went to church, uh, Wendell and I, we had this goal of having girlfriends with the same first name. And, and we had heard at, that, at this Lutheran church, there were two Lisas who were friends and he knew of them. And that if we started going there, maybe we could fulfill our goal. Turns out both of them liked him. So uh, I stopped going to church. So didn't feel a need. But the reality was <clears throat> I was an angry kid. Um, something from early on, some things in life of feeling abandoned by family, had this cauldron of anger that sat below the surface. And I was find, trying to find an outlet for it. I was a lonely kid who wanted to try to find community and a place to belong. And when I started playing football, you realize for fat kids, there's actually an opportunity to take out your anger and to have a community. And you get to hit people and be very violent. And, it's, and no one says anything about it. Football became an idol for me because it was, it was meeting those needs. But what it was doing is was fueling a violent mindset that in ways I can't even get to now was spilling over into other areas of life. And it was deeply a problem. It was the, the fallout of this idol of football that I had and the whole lifestyle and community that came around it. But God in his mercy loves to smash our idols. And he literally smashed my idol. One day we ditched school, we were drunk, and we were wrestling, because you know you do dumb things when you're drunk. And we were at my friend's house, and I picked Wendell up on my shoulder, was acting uh, foolish, and a friend dove at my legs. And I put my elbow out to catch myself and heard my elbow just snap. I had to quit football. God crushed the idol in crushing my elbow. We didn't have insurance, so I wasn't able to get it fixed properly. Uh, still can't fully extend it. But my idol had been smashed, and I needed to find a new center, a new idol. So I moved from thing to thing. I dropped out of school, just was in the pure hedonistic lifestyle, was just trying to get as much pleasure and as much fun as possible, going to parties, living that whole lifestyle. And the more uh, I pressed into that, the more this cauldron of anger began to overflow in other areas of life. And I said something, I don't even remember what it was exactly, but this best friend of mine, Wendell, one day said something to him and it ended our friendship. Never saw him after that. Uh, for my whole youth. And I kept spiraling. And as I would spiral, I found myself one day like kneeling before a porcelain throne, realizing this is not the way of life, right? So I looked for something else. I tried to be the good kid. So I re-enrolled in school. It was a charter school for bad kids. It was before they had charter schools for good kids. And... Uh, <laughs> 
And I thought I was, I was going to be like a good kid. I started trying to get good grades. I made a student council, appointed myself president, um, and started to try to be this good guy and get rid of these bad habits, get rid of these mistakes to correct this little, you know, these, these like, these vices, these bad habits I had. And it didn't work. Because underneath, there was something, and I could not describe it, but I was off. And what I was experiencing was sin and alienation from God, and there wasn't any sort of little tricks or time management or like little rubber bands on my, on my wrist to snap that was going to solve it. I needed something deeper. So I started praying these open-ended prayers, Allah, Buddha, Jesus, like whoever's out there, pick up the phone. And Jesus did. One day I was sitting in front of a computer screen on AOL Instant Messenger. And an old girlfriend who had moved to Oklahoma started sharing the gospel with me. I had heard it a bunch of times before, but there was something about the words that she was writing that was hitting my soul. And this cauldron of anger and sin was beginning to melt away as I prayed and asked God to forgive me, as I received Jesus sitting in front of that computer screen, in that moment, God got a hold of me. And it was this sweet moment of repentance that changed the trajectory of my life. It changed the trajectory of my life. Like so much so that I, I thought things were gonna start going good for me because in the neighborhood I grew up in, there was like a lot of this like prosperity idea that like things go good for you when you have faith and everything started going bad for me. My friend, a different friend, encouraged me to break up with a girlfriend so that, you know, I could honor my faith. And then he took her to senior prom. <laughs> then... My mom moved away, and I had to move in with that friend while he was dating my old girlfriend. My car broke down, so I just had to drive everywhere with him. And the fact that I didn't even care about that, but that I was forgiving him, and this, this cauldron of anger had dissipated as I was on the floor each day reading through the book of Matthew, encountering this Jesus who changes the trajectory of life. That moment was a moment of repentance. But that moment needed to be encountered, needed for me to encounter my sin and turn from that, not just merely bad habits and mistakes. And it's true for us too, not just when we come to faith, but in all of life. Martin Luther says all of life is repentance. And so we need to look at all of, our, all of our life and continue on that path of repentance, of turning from sin and turning toward God. Underneath your bad habits, your mistakes, your oopsies, there's often motives that if you look at are actually sinful. This is what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying it's not just the outward appearance and the outward action, but lustful thoughts are on the spectrum of adultery. Unrighteous anger is on the spectrum of murder. Look deeper because there is sin there that needs to be turned from. Now, I don't want to overstate this. In some traditions, some groups I've been a part of, you can overdo this and 
uh, see everything as sin and say, there are no mistakes, there are no bad habits. There are those. They have their place. I, I don't want you to be the type of person who spills like a little, it's like a little mustard stain on your shirt and you've said like, I have sinned because of my prideful handling of this mustard and dishonored the God who created these fabrics. Like, you made a mistake. It's not a big deal. But, but, maybe the pendulum swung the other way to where we easily dismiss things and just chalk it up to a mistake or a bad habit when there is actually something underneath that needs to be identified and addressed. I'll give you some examples from my own life. It's easy to think that it's just a bad habit when I over-talk and dominate a conversation. But when I'm honest and I look deeper, there is a prideful self-orientation to life that is, looks at me as the center of the world, and I need to repent. A prayerless life. I'll go through seasons where there's very little prayer, and I'll just describe it as I'm just too, a little too busy. The reality is I'm acting and living in a way that says, I don't need you, God. And that needs repentance. This is the one that makes me the saddest. When I'm perpetually late home from work, perpetually late, it's easy to look at it as just a time management issue but it could also be, and I think it is, the worship of work over God and turning my task list into a mistress that keeps me away from my wife. Underneath, when we honestly look at the motives, there's often sin there that needs to be repented of. You may be saying, Jim, the type of life you're describing sounds miserable when you're looking at every little thing and looking for the sin underneath it, but it's not. There is a beauty here, a beauty to repentance. In Deuteronomy 30, God's laying, has laid out his covenant with his people and he's given them an option. The option is the path of death and the path of life. The bus that leads you away from God and the bus that brings you back home. And it's, it's his law, it's his, the way that you, you follow him and flourish with him. And he says, to the degree that you disobey and you turn away, your life wilts. To the degree that you obey or even return back home, there is a restoration and flourishing. And what happens if, if we honestly look at the sin, there is a beautiful moment here. It says in uh, Deuteronomy 30 that God will have mercy on you. When we look at the sin, it's not just enough to look at it and say, that's bad. But to the degree that we understand our sin is the degree that we understand the expansive, incredible mercy that God has towards us. And, and, and this may be too simplistic. It probably is. But for some of us who just don't feel any vibrancy of God's love, some of it has to do with us viewing our lives as habits and mistakes and not looking in the face all that he has forgiven us of. The experience of mercy, the, experience, the acknowledge of our sin when brought to God helps us see the beauty of his mercy. And it helps us experience restoration too. There's a certain restoration, a certain good 
that comes from turning away from sin because God created the world to work in a certain way. And when we turn from sin, there is rescue, but it's often rescue that we don't see because repentance averts the tragedy that could have been. The beauty of repentance is that in this room, there are dozens of marriages that would have fallen apart, but haven't because of repentance. That there are moral failures averted. That there are people who are not in rehab. There are kids who still have their dads. There is loneliness subverted, murders uncommitted, lies untold because repentance sent you in a new direction away from sin and toward God. Repentance is a gift, a beautiful gift, because it helps us see and deal with our sin and calls us to turn away from it. But turning away from sin is not enough. There's another turn, even the more important turn, and that's turning toward God. Look at verse seven. It says, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon, abundantly pardon. That word return, it's this verb that means to like turn around, to be redirected, to uh, have a whole new reorientation. It's a radical reorientation of your heart and your mind that were like a bus headed in the wrong direction and grabbing the steering wheel and immediately turning it around. And, and not just to stay there, but to head home toward God. God's people in this passage they were the trajectory of their life. The bus that they were on was being driven by Babylonian idols, drawing them further and further from God and deeper and deeper into destruction. And God is saying, return to me. It's not too late. This bus can be turned around. And it's not just about stopping the momentum of the bus, but it's about turning it around towards God. You know, Wendell and I, here was, here was the problem. When we were on our bus, we, we got out. The bus driver basically kicked us out, and then he, like, parked his bus. For some reason, he had, like, an old box of pizza, and he was like, here, you want a piece of pizza? Like, this is the best I could do for you. And we knew that we had headed in the wrong direction, and we needed to head back home. Problem was, we couldn't. We didn't have money. Bus wasn't going there. And we were so way out far in North Scottsdale that we did not have the ability to walk back. So reluctantly called my stepdad. He drove out like an hour to come get us. Got in the car. And I tell you what, this guy, he was on his way to uh, like, a, I think it was a Jimmy Buffett concert. So he was like dressed up like a parrot or something like that. And he was furious. And the entire drive was just naming all of the different things I would have to do to earn my way back into his favor. But that's not the way God is. Look at what it says, compassion and abundant pardon. When we call upon God and are headed in the wrong direction, we don't have the ability to make our way back home. But God comes after us and brings us back home. And doesn't say, you earn your way back to me, but he creates the vehicle to bring us home back to him. Compassion and abundant 
pardon. The turn of repentance is to turn away from sin and toward God. But when we turn back toward God, we see that he's already made the move towards us. In Luke 15, there's this beautiful story set in the context of talking about heaven rejoicing over people repenting. And it's the story of the, the prodigal son. And the story goes that there was a man who had two sons. The younger son asked for his inheritance early so that he could leave the family home and wander off and go party and do his own thing, functionally giving his father the middle finger and saying, I want nothing to do with you. I am moving on. He goes, he travels, he parties, he squanders his money, and he finds himself in a predicament where he's out of money and he's working in this nasty pig farm. He's smelly and he's looking at the pig food. He's so hungry, he wants to grab a hand of that pig food and eat. He is at the lowest of low and realizes he has sinned. He has wandered away. He has gone away from the Father. The story does not end there. Often when we think about sin and repentance, we think that's what the story is. It's to realize that we are sitting in pig slop and say, this is terrible. I shouldn't be here. End of story. Just feel bad about yourself. The story does not end there. The story ends with the turn back toward God. What we see is the young man is wandering back home. He's reciting this speech he's going to say to his dad about how terrible he is and ask for his forgiveness and just say, make me your servant. I'm no longer worthy of being your son. And as he's reciting this speech, glances up and he sees an old man sprinting towards him. The father moving towards him, compelled by love. And as soon as he gets to him, he embraces him. It's his son. You can imagine tears streaming down his face and the overflowing love that the father has toward his son. And it says in verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, put shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. We're throwing a party. We're throwing a party because for this, my son was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. That, that repentance isn't just about stopping our trajectory away from God, but it's about turning around and seeing that the father is sprinting towards us loving us, coming towards us with compassion and forgiveness and pardon and celebration and restoration to be back in the family and back in the Father's arms and with his favor and to have him lavish his love and grace upon us. What has happened in this room is there are, there are hundreds of prodigal stories of us thinking we need to turn around and seeing God running towards us. Let's never forget the beauty of it. My friend Wendell, I'd gone 20 years with only having like a couple of conversations with him as of 2019. 
And then all of a sudden I get this call I'm, when I'm in Hungary. I'm on a boat at 11 p.m. in the Danube River. And I, I, I didn't even know my phone worked out there. And I'm looking and he's calling. And I pick it up and he says that uh, he'd been diagnosed with MS and that uh, he was back in Arizona and some crazy things happened and he didn't have his medicine and he didn't have a car and he was stuck out in the heat of an Arizona sun. And if you know MS and the heat and how that can impact you and then he, he needed some help. And I wanted to help him, but I was like literally in another country. I couldn't even get to the shore of Hungary if I wanted to. So I started just texting friends, texting people back here in uh, Arizona, texting some of you. And I didn't hear anything for several days because I was in Hungary. And when I got back, there was a barbecue, there were some things going on, and Wendell was there. Wendell was there with a bunch of my like church friends. This guy who was like my family, my my, my guy I grew up with is sitting there talking to my daughter. I hadn't seen him in 20 years, and now he's like best friends with all my best friends. And he tells me the story of how different people helped in these incredible ways, opened up their home, helped him get his medicine, helped him get connected to some work and some other things like that. And in this powerful moment. Now, one thing I knew about him is that he was a strong atheist, and I followed his uh, Facebook rants and could discern that for sure. He followed mine as well. Um, and he started to tell me, he said, Jim, uh, you never believed this, but um, like the way that your people have like responded has me rethinking some of this stuff. And then he pulled up his shirt and, on his sleeve and he said, and maybe, you know, it would make sense of this like dumb tattoo I got when I was 18 on my 18th birthday. And he pulled up his arm sleeve and he showed me this tattoo of a cross. And he kind of laughed about, you know, 18 years old, you get that like little 18 year old immediate tattoo. And I was stunned because I pulled up my arm and we had the same exact tattoo. I'll go ahead and show the, the picture here at that moment. The same exact cross tattoo. The hanger didn't work, but the cross did, apparently. <laughs> um, and he said, maybe there's something to this. And in the fall of 2021, I had the privilege of baptizing my daughter and baptizing my brother, Wendell, out here in this, uh, out front. There was that moment. Josh Butler really fired up in the background. <laughs> and on that day of baptism, I was looking around and thinking, how crazy is it that two prodigals, like me and Wendell, who were headed in a bus away from God, that he turned it around and he came after us and he brought us home to be a part of his family and to make us his children. As I looked around, I saw that it's not just us, but the whole, the whole front porch was filled with similar stories. 
Abby, who had been on the road away from God, chasing the idolatry of creativity, creatively loved by God and brought back into his family to creatively love others. Sari, who would have been on the road of overly focused introspection and looking at her own life, encountered the God who saw her and turned her around and brought her back home as the father who sees her most deeply. Brent, who would have been obsessed with climbing the ladder of his career, encountered the God who climbed up the cross to bring him back home to be his son. Over and over again, looking around, seeing you and your stories, and seeing how we were on a bus away from God, and he stopped us and showed us our sin and invited us to turn back around to find that the Father was moving towards us to make us his family again. Rejoicing, celebration over the goodness that we encounter in that. I have two uh, two invitations for you. To, To some of you who are not following Jesus and you sit on the periphery and you're intrigued, let me just say, Christians, we can be a bunch of knuckleheads sometimes. We are the people who wander away from God and sit in the pig slop and make all kinds of mistakes. But Jesus, Jesus, through Jesus, the Father is running towards us. He is running towards us. My friend Wendell said he encountered the love of God running towards him through the love of all these different people. But it is Jesus And and if you don't know him, come find one of us. We want to pray with you and talk with you and invite you to know him and answer any questions you have. To the rest of us, there's an older brother in this story who stands back and will not celebrate that his lost brother has been found. And he's become cynical. He feels like he knows everything. And he folds his arms and says, I'm not getting in on this. Let us not be like that. Let us over and over again encounter the overwhelming grace of God and be melted by his love to look our sin in the face, but look to the cross so much quicker. It's not just a once in a lifetime journey that we take, but it's a daily journey where we realize the bus needs to be turned back around and we need to return to God. So if there's that sin that's being overlooked or pushed down or justified, look it in the face, but look deeper into God's mercy and kindness and grace. Think about the absurdity and the beauty of all he's shown to us. Those who were sitting in Babylon, who heard the words of the suffering servant couldn't have possibly imagined what God would do to make things right. Beautiful, but hard to understand. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone 
in his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hundreds of years before God's people sat and wondered what these words meant. Two thousands of years when Wendell and I were looking at our tattoos, after Wendell and I had been looking at our tattoos, we looked back at this event. And what we see is not a ridiculous 18-year-old's, you know, choice of getting a tattoo of a cross, but you see something real, something beautiful, a real cross that really dealt with our sins. And so as we come to the table, let us focus on that. Focus on the beauty of the cross. For every evil act we've done with our hands, every punch, every lie typed, every hotel key held in a moment of adultery, his hands were nailed to the cross to pay for our sins. For every wayward place we've wandered from God, his feet were nailed to the cross to pay for our sins. For every evil thought we've thought in, in our heads of, of pride and lust and hatred, he took the crown of thorns, pounded into his own head to pay for our sins. For lives that were dead in sin, for people who were lost, he died for us and he found us to give us the opportunity to repent and to believe in him. The cross and what he went through the suffering servant in real life, not just poetry, but taking on flesh, was one of the ugliest moments of history, but showing us the beauty of God's mercy and the beauty of repentance. Let's pray. God, we do just tremble at the incredible mercy and love that you have showed us. And when we were running away from you, when we were wandering away from you, that you were coming after us. And for those of us who need to know you, God, I pray that they would be able to see behind all the foolishness that we as Christians do some, sometimes see beyond that and to see the one who came and rescued fools like us. God, I pray for us who are reluctant to address the sin in our life to bring it out into the open because we think that it's, it's death to do so. God, we, I pray that you would bring it into the light and that you would bring your healing and your forgiveness to it and that you would allow for there to be a turning and an encounter with your mercy. And so we pray that as we together worship, that more than we would even look at our sin, we would look twice as deep at your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take some time now. Let's pray. Let's worship. Let's sing to him. Come forward, take communion. And if, if you have questions about Jesus, you want to pray with some folks, come find one of us. We'd love to pray with you.